0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a very special guest, former player of mine and now professional lacrosse player going into its eighth season and certified mental performance coach, Mark Lassini. Thank you so much for coming on the
1: show. Thomas, I'm super fired up to be on here. You know, I, I think I would like to start off with saying as as much as you don't like me saying it, um, that I don't get to the level I'm at as a lacrosse player and in person without you. So I'm really grateful for our relationship. Uh, well,
0: I, again, I appreciate you saying those things, and I'll put it back to you that uh, you know the time that we spent together in New Haven uh, was as transformative for me, probably it was for you. And when people ask all the time, like when you miss, what do you miss the most? It's being able to interact with individuals like yourself, and it's very interesting. And why I wanted to have you on is to tell how how you've taken kind of your approach towards athletics, academics, but now put it into a career, and specifically, I want to dive into the mental performance stuff because. That's often an area that can get um, kind of buzzwordy or kind of uh, cliche, but some of the work that you've done already is pretty incredible. Um, And the fact that you live it yourself going into, as I mentioned, your eighth season, uh, that doesn't happen by accident. So could you just kind of walk everybody back? um, You know, let's go back even to your high school or college of how, how you got to Yale and then specifically how you got to where you're at today.
1: You know, it's interesting, Thomas, and and I appreciate you bringing that up. I, I would go all the way back to my high school for uh, for sure and, and and point to a really transformational time. Um, but as we say, there's no there's no breakthrough without a breakdown. And my senior year of high school, Uh, coming off of North Jersey Player of the Year. Um, I got a stretch fracture in my lower spine, uh, which made me a a player coach for most of my senior year. Um, And at the same time, my mom was diagnosed with stage 3 lymphoblastic lymphoma. So as a a teenager, uh, I was going through it, you know, psychologically, physically, having a little bit of an identity crisis as who am I if I'm not a peak performing athlete. And, And I can honestly say I wouldn't be doing the work I am now if it wasn't for that pain. You know, something we say in psychology is pain is leverage, right? If you want to see why somebody's doing something or not doing it, look no further than pleasure or pain. Uh, and, and that sort of pain that I went through, uh, I look back at those years, although they were terrible to go through, um, it, it, it allowed me to do what I'm doing now. I think I have a deep appreciation for my body, um, my mind and my spirit from that time. And when I got back on my feet uh, and was able to to work out again, you know, every time I went into the weight room, it was a d- different and a higher purpose. So that, that's where kind of my uh, like for the weight room turned into a little bit of an obsession because I could see it as an outlet. I could see the, the, the progress. It was something that was the ultimate reality for me. It's the truth. I can always go back to that. Um, and it, it's not where you're ever going to be lied to. Right. So I fell in love with it. Um, And then I was able to uh, take that to a a postgraduate year before heading off to Yale where we met and um, build a build a foundation even before meeting you, which was focused on the little details that, like I said, that stem from the gratitude of having my health back and and uh, my mom healthy again um, and seeing her come her way. I, I always explain it this way, Thomas, you know, when you're when you're going through school, you have these motivational speakers that come and speak to you and, and you're probably jazzed up or psyched up for the day. Uh, but when my mom was really going through that and it wasn't looking good for a great uh, great while, I would say it was it was much more than a motivational speaker, right? It was something that I had to embody. I had to experience. Um, and now I have this level of appreciation that I'm not sure I would have had had I had not gone through that sort of pain. So that, that leads me to where I am today. Uh, I'm still obsessed with training. Uh, I absolutely love Uh, the physical aspect of it. And then more so, it it fed into the mental component, right? I had a mental coach my last two years at Yale alongside you. um, And that was kind of like, whoa, I didn't know you could train between the ears. And and that was a a missing piece for me. So I think it's a major reason why I was able to go to the next level uh, and then continue a career.
0: Other than watching motivational videos or everybody knows, you know, you need to discipline and some people think that means waking up early in the morning at four 30 and other people think it means, you know, being super strict on your diet. What, what is mental coaching or, or as you say, the training in between the ears, because I think it sounds good in theory, but it Hmm. often gets lost in translation. And then actually in practice, it it really doesn't have any measurable gains. And I know one of the things that you did really well was you'd be so dialed in buttoned up. You'd come to the weight room. There was no question. And I think a lot of Hmm. coaches would ask me, how do you motivate your players? Well, if you have to motivate your players in the weight room, that that's a problem. I had to hold <laughs> you back. And then for anybody listening, you know, Mark's a great guy. He's got a great smile. um He has a look, and if he would shoot that look at someone, I mean, you would fear for their life because you were so dialed in. You got those freshmen, sophomores, you know, lined up, squared away. And so, from a coaching standpoint, on my end, it was great, um you know, to be there to support, uh, to guide, and direct. But I never really had to in in that program really push so much as, you know, guide and direct, but it was because of people like you, what, what is that mental edge when people are talking about like, I'm going to the gym, I'm going four days a week, my diet's clean, but like, what, what is the range from say zero, which is nothing to 10 being perfectly dialed in? Could you kind of walk us through that range?
1: Absolutely. And and the way I would explain it, Thomas, and to make it pretty clear and concise for those listening is the, is the term psychological architecture. So what that really means to me is uh, when tough times hit, is, is your foundation made of stone or is it made of sand? And, and that stone, right, that foundation uh, between your ears that I'm talking about, when I reference psychological architecture, it really has to do with self-awareness, like knowing yourself pretty intimately, um, maybe from a personality standpoint, but also doing some uh, introspection and deep uh, self-reflection, Um knowing what you want in life, right? Goal setting, having an aim. We don't experience positive emotion without it, right? Unless we have an aim and see ourselves progressing towards an aim, right? So creating a vision for your life, what what you want um, a few months from now and a few years from now, Uh, your belief system, right? A thought that gets repeated becomes a belief. Um, Your beliefs turn out to be uh, your actions, right? So the actions we take or do not take are based upon our beliefs. So what we start to um, do is we start to tell ourselves different stories. And, And if I could point to something that, I was doing correctly at that time was communication, right? I had it said to me, um, by my main mentor in the field of sports psychology, uh, Dr. Christina Versari, um, the quality of your communication will determine the quality of your life. I'm like, wow, that's, I thought it was, I thought it was work ethic. You know, I thought it was perseverance. What is this communication piece? Well, it turns out that we act out the stories we tell ourselves, Thomas, right? And if I, whenever, when I walk into a weight room, I really believe that if i put uh, all my effort into it i could become you know an all american one day or i can become a better at uh, my position or a better teammate which is the most important thing to me right so they kind of understanding that the actions that we take come from an intrinsic motivation that's made up of your beliefs your your, your closest support system your goals and then that self awareness i think we are starting to start to realize the foundational elements of of psychological architecture, what it means to be mentally tough, because what's not mentally tough is is thinking that you should go through every single game, right, with the same issues and never addressing them, right? What's what's mentally tough is doing the work beforehand, like in the weight room or on yourself, so that when you're in game, you know you've put in the time, right? Because the harder you work, the harder it is to quit, that sort of idea, right? So when then you're in it, then, you can, you're, then after you finish that and you, you work through a hard workout or work through a hard game, um, then you're able to reflect again, you're able to debrief again, you're able to rehab your body and your mind again and get ready for the next bout. So I think – I know that's a, a long way of putting it, but hopefully uh, that, that kind of uh, puts an, uh, 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 an encompassing idea around what mental performance is and, and what psycholog- psychological architecture is all about. And I'd love to get your thoughts on – when we often would work with either
0: first years or just call them someone new to the system, they thought they were going hard. They were like this, I'm giving a max effort. And in reality, I don't know. And maybe you can, I don't know if you can unlock your true potential without having a culture around you um, to go outside of your comfort zones. And that's really tough, especially in today's environment and athletics college. And, you know, even at the high school level of how do you push organically um, and that it's not punitive. How do you get someone to, you know, want to be engaged with their, their culture and everybody works as hard as they can. And the outputs may be different, right? You may come in and squat the house. Someone else may not be cleared for that. They got to go do something, but doing things with maximal intent. I think every practitioner I've spoken to on this podcast agrees intent really, really drives change. But Mm. if I'm working with someone or if I'm not part of that culture, where do I start? it's easy when I could look up to you or look to the other guys in the class and say, I want to be like that. And often great programs have that modeling effect. But if I'm a coach right now and it's, you know, a dumpster fire, nobody shows up, nobody's bought in. How
1: do you even begin that process? I think it's standards. It's behavioral expectations. It's, it's um, what, what you accept, you promote sort of idea, right? So uh, something that I'm talking to clients and friends alike is, is to, to get edgy. And really what that means is, right? There's a term in psychology called the zone of proximal development. It's actually where the zone comes from, right? Being in the zone. And that's understanding your competence and then going a little bit further, right? And and, and never putting a ceiling on yourself, right? We love to watch musicians, artists, and, and athletes when they're in the zone. Why? Because they're doing something they're extremely competent at. And then going a little bit further you now there's two things I really liked in your, in what you gave me there Thomas is one the, the idea of role models and modeling I think that's super important right for a coach listen like your, your, your athletes are always going to be looking for a chink in your armor right and you have to show up every day that's why leadership is so difficult because it's an everyday endeavor right the power of role models is like unprecedented we could we can spend this entire podcast talking about it but you also said intent drives change. And I brought it up already, but you, you have to know what you're aiming at, right? You really have to be keenly focused on what you're doing. There's a guy I look up to in this field who has since passed, Jim Rohn, who says, a fuzzy future has little pull power. A fuzzy future has little pull power. So how, how focused are you, right? Do you know what you actually want? And, and the, the most amazing thing about walking into Yale is the foundation was already set. You know, I fell in line um, with some hard-nosed people, right? And a and guy I talk about a lot. Um, Peter Spaulding, right, was a senior when I was a freshman. Um, didn't play too much, right, at all. Um, but I looked up to him, right, taking shots off the shin in cold February in New Haven, Connecticut. It's not an easy thing to do, especially if you're third, fourth string goalie. But what we had there was special, right, and everybody was important. You know, they, they still have it there. One, I only need everybody, right? That's just the truth. And I think once you start uh, getting a little bit of individuals that are willing to get edgy, You know, and and scrap, you know, that's what I always say to my friends, right? They'd be like, how are you guys going to be this year? And I said, we'll scrap for an Ivy League ring. I know we will because it was a mentality we had there. You know, I was lucky enough to walk through that doors into a system that was already there, a culture that was there and happy to add to it.
0: And then obviously things were going pretty good, but you guys took it to a whole new level. And I think a lot of coaches often get to that. We're good enough. And, and it's better than it's ever been. And often if you haven't won, just being above 500 was good. How do you fight off that complacency? So I know that's something that coach Shea talked about as well Is that I want to get here, but I want to stay here. And and people often realize, don't realize it's so hard when you're beating teams by 10 goals, 12 goals, you know, you're just crushing them. You're putting in your third and fourth string. They're still crushing them. How do you go and make every day a challenge? And I mean, how many times did you see coach take out the balls to be able to, uh, you know, do ground balls or go through that, what was this little window there, window of doom, mm-hmm. where you make you guys two hands to pick up a ground ball no matter what. Those are the kind of standards I don't think that everyone understands that no matter what your win-loss is, you can always come back to as a coach.
1: You know, can't speak higher enough about Coach Andy Shea, right? He was the reason I went to Yale, um, main reason I went there. Uh, looked up to him then, still look up to him now. You know, there's a Muhammad Ali quote that says, it's not the mountain in the distance that should scare you. It's the pebble in your own shoe. And if there's a guy I know on this planet that looks for the details to get you right, um, that is Coach Andy Shea, right? So he's always going to be looking for those details that are going to make the difference. And uh, we could play an excellent game and win by 10, right? But he's still looking for the things that we can get better at. And I think that's what he does so well. He, he structures the practice uh, and, and the training. So it's pertinent to what we can improve upon. Uh, down to the very minute, right? You know, this drill is eight minutes, this drill is 16 minutes, right? And uh, he has a really down to a science there and, and, and helps um, athletes by defining reality, giving them the truth, right? Not none of this... No you know, cozy coaching stuff, but just the truth, right? And then it was up to us to go get it or not, right? And I think, you know, that's why I admire the man so much is because of his details and and how he was able to find those little levers to pull to always improve throughout the course of the season.
0: Yeah, and I think it was so incredible to watch kind of a master in their craft. And, and as you mentioned, he's still, he's still doing things that, you know, people don't even understand, but he, he's kind of a wizard. Uh, he could get the best players to get even better and and he did so with such a unique style of uh, nobody wanted to let him down and it's just the mm-hmm. way it was and and it's always interesting to see at the alumni games people come back so how do you coach someone hard you're demanding not demeaning but get them to want to come back so much so that most of that pride doesn't shine off at all even when they graduate
1: I think it's you know when you provoke in my mind, there is the, the level of humility and curiosity and open mindedness that he has, right? Yes, he's 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 structured in the way of detail, right? But he's open minded and he listens, right? For, for instance, he he brought you in, right? He brought you in, and, and uh, you played a huge, huge role in what we were doing, Thomas, and and then you you eventually led our, our, our program um, to to a national championship. So I think that. Um, Self awareness, right? Coach Andy Shay knows what he doesn't know, and he brings in the right man for the job, like yourself, and that takes a level of humility, right? So, on top of the toughness that we're talking about, he also has that open-mindedness and humility to to bring in uh, those that are going to make the team uh, the best it can be.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting, you know, bring in as an expert, and we we see this across domains of all sports. I never never played lacrosse, but I know physics, <laughs> I know biomechanics, I, I know details, and and you're an extension of the head coach. And so working together and, and and it's not easy because I think some of the coaches, especially younger coaches can feel the need to have all the answers, but Mm -hmm. the best coaches I'm going to bring you as your domain expert and, and now run with it. And we, we surrounded ourselves with other coaches that had, you know, different expertise, but everyone within their role had a shared common vision and coach would talk about it, you know, at the beginning of the season, he'd talk about it. And then, you know, it wasn't discussed again. And it was mm-hmm. do, do your job. And I think that, again, is another hard thing. It's easy in theory, but to see it executed year in and year out. I mean, again, that's why I think he's, you know, one of the best in across all sports. But how did you take that? How did you take that after you graduated to the pros? Because, I mean, let's let's also talk about when you left. I think, I don't know if the shot clock had started in college yet or if it was coming in, in, but talk about from a bioenergetic standpoint, that was a massive change how did you apply your commitment and training to, to really reshape not only your game, but just your physical structure and how you you optimize your body?
1: I mean, I can't share that story without bringing you involved, right? You, 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 uh, you helped me climb all the way up to, uh, to oh, close to 220 pounds, and, and right now I'm 195, right, because of that shot clock. And, and at, at 220, you know, I, right, right up there, I was able to run on one of my fastest pro agility right? Five, ten, five, at that weight, right? So you were really exceptional at helping me find where I needed to be from a power output standpoint before drag came on. And then, yes, you're right. That transition was, was difficult for me, um, initially because there was a lot of up and down, up and down, up and down, which requires a different type of training, right? In terms of, right. I couldn't run as heavy. Let's just say that. And, and, uh, when I was able to make that transition I remember calling you. I remember calling you and saying, what are your thoughts here right because uh, I relied on you so heavily, my, my junior and senior year when we were introduced to each other. Um, but that transition um, is is difficult if you think, that everything looks like a nail. Therefore, we should use a hammer. I think it requires you to understand your sport. It understands what your responsibilities or your goals are if you're not an athlete, and then you can train accordingly. right? I think everybody will listen to the latest news or what's hot or what's a fad rather than looking at what their everyday life is, what their goals are and what their responsibilities are, um, and then finding a way to, to find alignment in your work. That's a high performance word. Alignment, right? Making sure it's aligned with what what you have going on. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. But it was a huge transition for me, right? Running heavier, really, really um, strong and fast to a much more up and down style that was more anaerobic.
0: Yeah, and I think for any of our international listeners who maybe don't know the structure of lacrosse, you have to kind of envision. I would probably say, and correct me if I'm wrong. You've got elements of hockey where it's a shift kind of format where you're not you're not coming off uh, after 10 minutes, it's this kind of on and off, but then also you're getting probably distances aerobically and anaerobically that could be like a midfielder, uh, or a striker in soccer. And also dudes are flying into you. So there's this, this balance of what's the heaviest we can be the fastest we can be. But also as you know, we talked, I don't know, maybe, you know, some of the stats, but when we talk about miles running a game in your position, which was the, the midfield, you're talking miles a game. Miles a game with bursts of uh, tactical strategy, but then the recovery might be a couple hundred yards to get back, play defense and smash. And so in college, it was much more of a, okay, we can get as big as we can be for power and resiliency and play defense. But now in this up and down environment, I think you had to adjust or otherwise you just, like you said, that load carriage, it becomes a detriment specifically to the longevity of performance throughout the, the match.
1: Yeah, I I think one of the athletes that comes to mind that I really admire is, is Rafael Nadal, just from a training perspective. The guy right at the top of his craft. Um, If if you haven't seen the documentary Strokes of Genius, where you have this Federer versus uh, Nadal, kind of the way they approach their training. You have Nadal, who's so fit. He's so strong. And then uh, Federer is more of an artist, right, with with his shot making ability. The reason that comes to mind is because Nadal plays that similar sort of game that, that I had to and I still do. Right. As a source of defensive midfielder, where if it's a long point, he's bursting and doing it for a very long time. So I think, for, yeah, for the listeners, it's not necessarily your, your football where you have that tremendous amount of downtime in between plays. And you do have to have that, quote unquote, endurance aspect a little bit, right, where you're constantly on the jog or on the move, just like uh, soccer. So finding that interplay of making sure your training is appropriate to fit that certain level of, of play. Um, and then I can't, not express the, the psychological aspect that comes with that, right? Because after a burst, all you want to do is recover right? Meanwhile, you have to start tapping into a different energy source, which is which is um, you know psychologically demanding as well. Walk me through that. Did you feel any difference when you
0: know you were two, 215, 220 flying into people, smashing into people to then be 195? Did any of that change or did you actually feel relieved because you could feel a difference in that recovery state?
1: Yeah, in, in the recovery state, I could definitely feel that. I, you know, what I would say is, uh, you know, pound for pound strength-wise, a- a- am I where I was? Absolutely not. But I will say it, it, it does feel nicer uh, on, on the bones and tendons, right, run, being 25 pounds lighter. Um, yeah, I definitely felt the difference, Thomas. and It, it was a, a tremendous transition that happened there. But I still um, reminisce and think about those days in which I was – um, moving the weight that I was, and 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 when in the life of no shot clock, and 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 the different game, it was it was pretty a special time as well.
0: And I think in anyone too listening, because I know and you you've mentioned to me before this, you know, you talk to people. Well, what's the best? The best is going to move when you're 18 to 21. Your recovery is much different. When you're six years, seven years, eight years, ten years in, mm-hmm. just biologically, you have different things. So anybody that thinks that optimal state is a fixed point. Um, they're the missing the, the the larger picture, which is that I am 25, I'm 27. And again, with lacrosse, some of you guys had to have full-time jobs. There's a lot of other factors that get integrated into it. And and that moving target, that window may move throughout the course of a season, as well as a career. So I think, you know, you're spot on with like, how do you feel playing and can mm-hmm. you give up and what's the, what's the lightest you can be where you're still strong enough to be resilient, but you know, also fast enough with your, with your, uh, muscle fibers to, to get to that ball because there is a, an upper limit and a lower limit of velocity that the
1: game's played at. Definitely. And, and what comes to mind for me, Thomas, is uh, one of my best friends is an Ironman athlete, and I got turned on to to, to watch it because of him. and He's absolutely incredible. And at the top of that professional sport is a guy named Christian Blumenfeld who won the Olympics and triathlon and, and now he's taking, you know, the half Ironman and, and, and full Ironman by storm. And he was on a rich Roll podcast and I was, I was listening to him. And then he was like, everybody blows it out of proportion. You just have to have the right nutrition and the right recovery slash sleep. Right. And cause everybody's going what, what massage selling gun are you using? and what are you doing here? What are you doing there? And, and he was just how do you hydrate your body from a nutrition standpoint and do you get the proper recovery and sleep? And you listen to him speak, And yes, he's three training sessions a day and it's his whole life. I understand that that's not realistic for everybody, but right. But he's got it dialed in and, you know, smart people borrow, but genius steal. If you can get on that sort of strategic perspective on recovery and nutrition, like you helped me do Thomas, right? You helped me eat the right foods to make sure I was sustaining the, the, the calories that I I was expending. Yeah. I think people forget that you have to have a plan and that plan mm-hmm. is going to be fine
0: tuned and i'd be curious how how is your plan now like walk walk us through a day in the life of you know your process and from lift practice game or what you go through because i think listeners and by the way you've done this yourself you you've always been a self starter because you're a professional and you want this to go as long as you can at the highest level you can mm-hmm. but walk through some of the things and what are some things that you thought worked that didn't because that's also important too you're going to have to trial and error some of these things, whether it's cryo, sun, not massage, you know, float, whatever it is. What was your journey like? And what is your current program that you use now to
1: kind of stay in balance? It's interesting, Thomas. One of the character coaches I've had, uh, his name is uh, Ben Ives. He was a Navy SEAL for 19 years. Something that he delineated for me was the difference between a professional and a pro. And a professional needs the framework and the system around them. And a, and a pro, he or she just knows what they need. Right. So I've had to create that. Right. And, and finding organization in, in the messy. Right. Because I'm also an entrepreneur as, as well. So you, you asked me a question, you know, what does my day look like? Right. There's some sort of sweat every single day. Right. And, and I mix upper body and lower body throughout the week. I'm, I'm constantly finding time to get 20 minutes on the wall, which for listeners, that's wall ball in, in, in lacrosse. And just making sure I have that fresh feeling in my hand so that um, when I hit the field, you know it's not second nature to me. I, I mean it is second nature to me. and so, throughout the, throughout the day, um, I, it's kind of boring, I guess I would say, Thomas, right? It's, it's pretty routine, right? I'm eating the, the same kind of foods, high fruits and veggies, right? And, and um, taking care of my, my sodium inc- intake and, and understanding uh, my hydration is so key, right? Some uh, company that you turned me on to that um, I, I now promote and, and push is Thorn. Right and and Thorn Health Tech has really helped me stay on top of my game from a nutritional standpoint, so that I'm getting the macro and the micronutrients that I need. Um, and then the wearable of having a, a Whoop on my on my on my wrist for the last three years of my life, every single day, and, and tracking my heart rate variability, just staying on top of this, right? Because um, I guess you would. This falls directly in line with this podcast's, uh, podcast's ethos, which is um, what what is not uh, measured cannot be managed right? And I really like that idea, right? Staying on top of um, everything that you're doing. I mean, I even go so far as to have an affiliate partner in body composition analysis, because I want to know what's going on underneath the hood, right? I stay in touch with you and, and things like that, because um, yes, they, they give me insight to what's going on. And then they let me know how much I have to adjust based on the consistency that I'm already having.
0: Yeah, I think people always are looking for the the, the magic pill. But oftentimes, it's a bunch of little corrections that you're constantly doing over time. So that consistency and then one or two percent each way, that's how you when you look at six months, four years, eight years, 10 years of a career, that you're just you know in a completely different stratosphere. And I want I want to go, you mentioned a wearable, um, you talked about Whoop. I've also seen people use the O ring and, and they go back and forth. And, and this is what's tough is that clear clearly, uh besides whatever the research says, you've used the whoop whoop has helped you with your behavioral uh, changes in some of the things that you do um, and inform you in your decision-making. So when, if they say what's more accurate or not, I remember the same argument with foam rollers, people would say foam mm-hmm. rollers don't work. And I'd say, well, when people lay on it and their knee doesn't hurt and they score three touchdowns or five goals, <laughs> I'm cool. Like, as it's not going to hurt them. So walk me through like kind of your journey with whoop and, and, and just kind of how you used it. Um, Cause clearly that has worked. Um, cause I know I can hear people in the background talking about, well, what's better or, or I'll tell you right now, if you're making that argument, you probably don't own either. Um, so <laughs> on a platform and developing a strategy is probably going to be the best. So could you just walk through, you mentioned kind of what, what that was all about?
1: Yeah, the first thing I would say is we're in the results business, Thomas. Right? You know, when I'm working with a client or when I'm working with an individual or a team, right? We're in the results business. So I could say thing that sounds things that sound nice, but it really comes down to the result. And I would say the best piece of equipment that you you should own is the one that you're going to use, right? Based upon what you're saying there, right? So when it comes to Whoop, um, the reason why I love it is because um, you know, I, I get it that it might not be 100% accurate. I understand that, but you know, that there might be some standard deviations there. However, it gives me what I need, right, in terms of the relative to my own body, right, because I use it every single day that I know when it's off. But it also is another one of those things, like we talked about during my time at Yale, that Shay did so well, that gives me the truth, right? It gives me the truth, right? And um, the same thing with body composition analysis when I go on an in body, right? That thing does not lie. It never does. Right. Neither does the weight room. Neither does the loop. Right. So the reason why I use these measurables is because there's a part of me that does not like waking up in the, in the red or the yellow. Right. And it says, Oh, I should just throw this thing off my wrist. You know, this is the, this doesn't make me feel good. Right. Well, if we are going to talk high performance, Thomas, right. It, it doesn't matter how you feel. Right. It matters your commitment. Right. And you're a lot of the time, your commitment has to be bigger than your feelings. And I would say most of the time, and uh, that, that is everybody, that knows me pretty intimately, knows that I'm a big proponent for mental health. So what I'm saying here is not that you should shun your feelings or not uh, that you should suppress those feelings. You should definitely express those feelings and have people that you can talk to. And at the end of the day, if you want results, it's going to be from commitment. And once you commit to something, you build self-respect. And in fact, it's one of the best ways to deal with anything that you're going on uh, internal turmoil-wise. And the last thing I would say to button up that answer about Whoop would be, since it gives me the results that I need and the measurements that I want, um, it, it leads into peak performance. right? I run a company called Marco c peak Performance. What is peak performance? You said it earlier. It's little corrections, little adjustments that make a big difference in results. When I'm, when I'm sitting down with a new team or individual, they are already good or great. And then through dialogue, dialogos, two people talking about their truth, we're able to find what those adjustments are for that team, for that individual. And that's what's exciting to me. It's not changing every single thing about their life. It's finding those little nuts and bolts that we need to tighten up. And it leads to bang, a big difference in what they're doing.
0: Totally. And and I think that a good, if you're a listener, a good indicator of whether you're dealing with someone who is actually pretty squared away at what they do is Are they saying you need to do a complete reboot? Because even in the worst situations, lack of commitment, teams aren't winning, maybe it's a new coach, like just call it just complete dumpster fire. You can find something good and you can find a group of individuals and those are your core individuals that you build off of, but it's gotta be organic. And when you try to, you know, absolutely like throw down a brand new program or paradigm that works somewhere else, that typically doesn't go well. Because again, every team, every year, I'd even say every year, it's a new recommitment to the goal. And so yet, talking back earlier, that communication and alignment and what we did in year one, isn't what we did in year two. And then we build off of it, or we actually regress. We, we change some of the things because now we have individuals that are more committed or bought in. We don't need those rules. So giving that autonomy to the players to make those decisions and be rewarded for it is probably more powerful than any coach coming in and say, oh, we're gonna have a 24 hour rule or we're gonna have insert whatever. I mean, frankly, if we're still talking about that, then we don't really have commitment to what our larger goal is. Otherwise, we we wouldn't really need those things. And and I think you just bring up so many great points with the technology because I, I was on the I was on a call with someone the other, other day and they said, yeah, everyone loves this technology until they don't agree with the output. And I think more than ever, athletes and teams and coaches have this opportunity To get higher fidelity, and so you mentioned whether it's Whoop and and I've used Whoop, I've used Aura, I've I've played around with different uh, CGMs, uh, glucose monitors. You're ultimately going to get an answer that you need to do something about. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it, then maybe you don't need to be measuring it yet. Or if you are, just like you said, that commitment to your goal, I think that's super important for people to understand. Because again, they'll go in and throw in a technology. You got to run its course, and you can always reevaluate later on. But like, let it run because it's not going to change things overnight.
1: You know, Thomas, what comes to mind when you talk like that is this differentiation between noise versus signal, right? And in the technological age that we're in, right, where there's so much noise, right? And everybody wants to tell you what to do on different advertisements. And you're stuck in this 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 doom scrolling or whatever you're doing, right? There's so much noise. And what you really need to find is your internal signal. And, and something that I, I oftentimes talk about, Thomas, is that I have a... Personal board of directors, and and you're on that team, right? And, and it helps me find my internal signal, right? Because uh, you know the funny part is it. Uh, funny part of my life is a lot of my best friends are 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s old, right? Because success leaves clues, and they know things that I do not, right? And if I can hang out and ask the right questions, right? Because going back to the communication piece, the biggest part of your life, right? You want better. You want better things in life. Ask better questions, right, to the right people who have gotten the answers um who know the strategies um and that takes that takes a a, a little bit of a curiosity right where you where you're not stopping until you get the answers that you need um, and i would finish that you know monologue by saying it, it comes back to listening right listening to what your body needs listening to those who know something listening to um, you know who did this really well was coach andrew baxter right he he came in his first year at yale was my first year at yale um, and i remember You know, McCormick was our captain at the time. And I remember our first huddle up and, and coach Andrew Baxter said, what do you guys do here? You know, tell me, tell me what you guys do here, right? What a powerful thing, right? He didn't come in and deploy his strategies, right? He listened first. And and I think the best do that. They listen first.
0: Even in the worst situations, because you're going to be together, like get to know people. And I I thought a lot of young coaches and I said, you know, do you know, do you know the athletes you're working with? Oh yeah, cool. And you're like, do they own a cat or a dog? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that, you know, what what kind of food do they like that? Well, I don't, okay. So you don't know, you don't know if they like cats or dogs, you don't know what kind of food that they like. So there's an opportunity there, especially when you're first trying to really assess what's going on, go deeper than, oh, we're playing lacrosse or, you know, insert sport, get to know the person and what drives them before you start going in and saying, all right, here's the framework and architecture, you know, you better figure it out or get out that, that just, again it doesn't work. And then that whole rebuilding process takes twice as long and, and actually may never even come to fruition because not many people like to exist like that. It's got to be a good fit culture-wise within the framework
1: of the sport. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you hit it right off the head. Uh, it really circles around having the right culture there. I, I mean, I I, I don't want to uh, beat on it a little bit too much, but it really comes back to that. Just making sure you're, you're finding yourself um in the right um, common language, if you will, right? Everybody's speaking to the same tune. And that's what we had at Yale. You know? That's why, um, you know, the difference, what is it? Um, a team is there and then it's not. They might steal some games. It's built on talent, but a program, everybody knows who the programs are in the country. Everybody knows because insert new athletic person coming in, talent, right? And they, if they fall in line with the culture, that's the program, right? And if we're talking about lacrosse, anybody who knows anything about division one across men's or women's or division three or or whatever it is, they know the programs in those divisions, right? The teams that are always going to compete for championships. And and when you start to look at why, you're going to see that there's a lot going on inside that program from a common language perspective. And and yeah, what what am I getting at? I'm getting at the fact that when you walk into Yale you know, people um are all doing the same thing and they're following in line right because sport just like life right regardless of this lacrosse they're continuous series of problem solving events and you're not going to do it uh, by yourself there's no such, such thing as a successful hermit crab, right so you have to find what it is um that you from a role perspective something you brought up briefly early on in the call what's your role on this team right actually right honestly Right? When you look in the mirror, what is your role on this team? Because we need you to be all that. right? Every every piece of that, if we want to have a chance of becoming a program year after year. It was so
0: interesting to watch. I, I'm thinking of people, as you're saying that, they weren't starting every game, but they knew their role, and they owned it, and they made it themselves better. And it was when people weren't looking, it was the cleaning up after lift. It was making sure you know on a ball hunt, everything was put away. And they didn't do it because they had to. They embraced their role. They loved their role. And then- That went into the final product and went out there. And and I want to ask, like, you know, that sounds great and all, but now in the pros, how how is culture different other than hey, we want to win because we make more money? Because that's got to certainly be a challenge. And and especially to not just lacrosse, but any team. I mean, you see guys that might move two or three different teams throughout the course of a year or two. How how do you deal with culture on the pro level?
1: Oh. Man, that's a great question, and the reason that's a great question is because I've had the privilege to be a captain of my team the last three years, right? And um, what happened over the last three years is we've gone up to back to back to back championships. So we've lost two out of the three, and there's a lot been a lot of learning that I've had to do, right? And um, how how do we deal with individuals that have a lot going on, right? Like you know, collegiate student athletes have a lot going on. But when you're an adult and you have a family, a lot of these individuals have families and other responsibilities. Now, how do you get them to buy into what we're doing the same way that they buy into whatever there, um, is going on at the home front? So I think I, I would just have to come back to communication. Right. There's a there's a principle in strength training called the fit principle. Right. Right. Well, what is it? Right. Frequency, intensity, type and timing. Right, and and it's a it's a principle that's been around for a long time. I think that's a way better principle for communication. What's the frequency in which you're reaching out to teammates and coaches? What's the intensity? Is it always to ask for something? Right, like am I supposed to be yelling at a player on my team? Hey, check up. We need more out of you. If I haven't been checking in throughout the week and months and throughout the season, no, I don't deserve that. Right, but if I build rapport, right, build a bridge of trust so strong it can withstand the weight of the truth. Right. You build that all along. And then the type and the timing. Right. Am I reaching out to them at the right time? Is it with a text message? Is it with a call? Right. Is it a Zoom session? Having a Zoom session with the team? Hey, this is where I think the team's at. Right. This is the things that I want to talk about. Right. This is the elephant. Let's address some of those. Right. Let's check up as a, as a group here because we're on a common mission. But right? I love that principle way more for communication than I do with strength conditioning. I love the transitive property. Right. And, and so that's what I would answer with. Right, You have to have some frequency um, and uh, emotional intelligence, if you will, about what's going on and what makes people tick, just like you brought up with, does that guy have a dog or a cat at home? Well, you better know that answer, right? Or at least something like that. Because if you don't know what makes the people in your community or organization tick, then we're, we, we have to go back to square one. We have to go way back.
0: One of the things I love is that as a coach, you know, you're saying all these things and it makes total sense, but you've actually lived it. And so as you mentioned throughout those you know you had a great college program you've had a very successful professional program that wasn't by accident could you give us you know whatever you can talk about just examples or case studies because i think everybody gets theory nobody ever says like man let's have terrible culture this year let's let's start yelling at each other but yet more often than not you do see this kind of implosion happen even on teams that have momentum and then they kind of collapse could you kind of share some firsthand stories or experiences how you dealt with it, how you might've dealt with it differently um, just so that listeners can kind of see because they're probably thinking, well, that sounds great for him. His team squared away, but you know, my school at blank, wherever, uh, it's it's different. So could you kind of share? Because I do think there's a lot of commonalities that extend way outside the actual domain of, of the sport. It's, it's small group dynamics is what it is.
1: You're going to keep asking these squared questions, man. That's outstanding. Uh, the idea that comes to mind for me is Faulty foundations fall, faulty foundations fall, just like a bad argument. It has the wrong axiom all the way at the bottom of it. You know, it's going to topple over at some point if we go on to a long, long enough discussion. So what I I, I said it earlier, and I'll reemphasize it, I was blessed, I was fortunate, and I was grateful to walk into those Yale doors when I did, right? You, you could talk to Coach Andy Shea. Has he, has he always had winning seasons? No, he hasn't always had winning seasons, right? You know, and he's been building that program for a very, 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 very long time. Right. And I came in a year after they won their first or second Ivy League tournament, right? Or, or Ivy League championship. And you know, and then I won three out of four, right? It was already building. I played a small role inside of it, right? So there was a foundation to, to get to get to the answer, Thomas, is is you have to set Realistic, measurable goals as a team and individuals that are actually attainable, right? If you're a startup program, you probably shouldn't say, What's our goal this year to win the national championship? Probably not likely, right? But we can, we can actually strive towards things that are hittable, right? They should be maybe just out of reach, but they're there. There's a, there's a probability that we get them. And I think once you start treating character and culture in the same manner because it's an individual and then it's that small, small group. Like you talked about, you start to build a foundational uh, of excellence, right? Because the, and really from a coaching standpoint, Thomas, or a leader or a parent, right? Any, these are, that's the hardest job in the world, right? You have an individual or a group of individuals, which makes it even harder. That's why boys in the boat is one of my favorite reads of all time. You have these nine individuals who are totally different, right? Going over to Nazi Germany and winning gold. Like, how how did they do that? Well, you start to realize that there was this common common goal, right? There were standards and behavioral expectations again, right? Just because there's standards and behavioral expectations in a program doesn't mean you can't flourish with your own personality. There are just boundaries. It's not an endless garden. It's a walled garden, and you can be inside that walled garden and you can play, right? But there are standards here, and this is what we do here. And if you want to break a rule, how about going beyond the standard, right? You know, that's what, that's, that's what uh, Ben Ives says all the time. Leaders, disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. I can't think of a better leadership quote. I can't, right? Because when you disturb the comfortable, you're willing to do an extra set, an extra workout session, right? An extra reach out to a teammate, right? Why is the word extra and extraordinary, Thomas, right? You have to be able to disturb the comfortable from that perspective. Right. And at the same time have that rapport building where you comfort the disturbed. I think if I was to answer your question in a nutshell, it's building the right foundation, which is a mixture of individuals with a high work ethic that care about each other.
0: And do you have any specific examples of it? Cause I, I think, I mean, I can go so many times of just thinking about you guys lining up and some of the guys in that, in my, in the thought that I'm having, they're in the, they're in the lacrosse league with you. And some of them aren't, but just, some of those events and, and, and just watching you guys go in and, and whether it was chin-ups, whether it was setting up for a station, the purpose that you had, but then w- turning and looking and and a young first year, second year. And like you said, it's years in the making that moment in time. And often with the championship teams, it's those one or two things, six months out during the summer. Uh, I remember one of your teammates sending pictures uh, from, he was over in Hong Kong but he sent it out to the group to let everybody know he didn't miss his sprints in the summertime. And like, you're like, Oh geez. I mean, I thought I was committed. I didn't know he had to take a train. He was in another country, yeah. but he he got his work done. The motivating factor that that had was just so awesome. And when coaches <clears> are trying to build winning programs, I tell them stop trying to win games, try try to win the little things because I've never been a part of a program that squared away and dialed into the details that it doesn't translate in. But I think oftentimes if you're short-sighted, we got to win this game. Well, what happens when you don't? Like now your outcome is going to change your process? Like you need to lock in. And and that's very hard for many coaches to implement and get started because they're focusing on the wrong things.
1: From a specific story perspective, right? Obviously, one of my best friends, uh, our captain my senior year, uh, Michael Quinn playing on a torn ACL. Why is he doing that? Right. Alex Otero, who, was the, who graduated a year before him, uh, standing up the whole bus ride all the way up to Ithaca to play against Cornell, standing on the bus ride the whole time because he he had to play with drop foot. Right? Why is he doing that? Right? Uh, Ty Warner, I remember when he was um, a freshman, I was a junior, um, and I was doing an extra set uh, of planks after a hard workout session that you were putting us through, um, and he asked me what I was doing um, down there. I said, come on down here. Um, within that same week, I told him and, and I kind of screamed at him because I, I let him know that, you know, you could be a first team All American if you wanted it, right? Because you're super talented. You know, three or four years later, he's a first team All American and national champion, right? Just because of his work ethic and his commitment to what we were doing there and, and to the standard. And I think one of the most amazing stories is, is Teddy Forst, right? I, I, I uh, had the opportunity to coach him a little bit when he was a junior or senior in high school, right? And then he actually ended up being a freshman at Yale when I was a senior, and he was a good athlete. Uh, He he wasn't an outstanding lacrosse player, right, compared to those that were in his his grade or were at Yale. His work ethic, after practice, after practice, after practice for four years, he put up a hat trick in the semifinals during their national championship run. How? How did that happen? And why are these stories happening? Right. It's because of the foundation that, that Shay built there, right? This, this total commitment to each other and what we were doing there. Right. Um, it was a standard to stay extra. And like you talked about from an intrinsic motivation really early on in this call, but right, if you're coaching effort, uh, I'm sorry for your program.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm laughing because they, they gotta make a 30 for 30 about that whole time. That was wild just to see, you know, just oh my God. I mean, it's what every coach dreams about is you got these guys that you're literally kicking them off the field you're, you're taking their sticks you're doing everything that you can to to try to pull them back because that you you could actually feel it and and mm. it just was so awesome and you mentioned a couple of the guys but i mean we could go on and on about those those little things that no mm. one knew Almost the mythology or the folklore of it like i remember you know probably the one of the greatest teams that never played was that team right before the COVID shutdown. And watching Jackson Morrill go through and checking every pin and every stack and every bench. I mean, almost to like, he had a ruler out to do it and he didn't have to, and nobody's watching. And he was a very accomplished player, came from an accomplished family, but like, those are the little details when people are like, what's the magic? It, it, it's all of it. it. It's every single thing. But to your point, that wasn't done overnight. That was oh. done through years and years, and I think programs need to understand the seasons are just for calendar purposes. A program is multi-year. The stuff that you conversations with Ty, conversations with wrestlers guy, and then and by the way, Ty took that and ran with it tenfold. And and again, he's just such an incredible. We got to get him on the show. He, uh, <laughs> he he's just such an incredible. Absolutely, so many levels, and he's great at lacrosse and doing incredible things now in med school. Um, and that's just whole group, but. That was over a course, a period of time where that championship was the culmination of years and years of guys believing into something that was impossible, that had never happened. And now you're asked to do these things, but to watch everyone have fun with it. I mean, that that was one of those ones. I'm
1: serious. They need to do a 30 for 30 on it. Well, let me ask you, Thomas, what was it like uh, for you? You know, I, I, I bring up the fact that there's that fa- faulty foundations fall, and right, you have these cracks that you want to just not, you know, not pay attention to. Not, they always surface in the playoffs later on in the season, they always surface, right? But what was it like for you um, walking into Yale, uh, understanding it? I, I would love to hear from a visual experience what did you feel about the program and, and being there?
0: Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, so the thing is, uh, so coach Shea is actually good friends with a family, friend of mine, one of my cousins. So they had actually known each other since coach Shea was running around in diapers. So that was the original introduction and, you know, he's, he's into sports and, and, you know, this was way back in, I don't even know, maybe 2013 or 14 before analytics were, you know, the new, the new hot rage. Um, but coach, you know, to your, to your credit, you know, he mentioned, he, he said, uh, you know, I'm open to this. What is this? We have a pretty good team. And then being open to some of the suggestions. And again, the magic at Yale was there. And and, and I think our department's role was really just to kind of give some of those physiological underpinnings that maybe you didn't have. And I think we did a pretty good job of, you know, giving individualized plans. As you mentioned, your plan was very specific, Um, but that's completely different than what a senior was or what, you know, maybe an incoming first year. And so that individualization, um, it was a cool challenge. Um, but it was nice, but it wouldn't have been possible if you didn't have the buy-in. And I think a lot of, especially coaches now that are new or, you know, they're excited to be a data, what's the term now, data scientist, data analyst, or a sports mm. all these other scientist words, mm-hmm. you're still dealing with people. And if people don't believe in you, that you believe in them, it doesn't matter what your graph or your chart says it's all about relationships that get them in. And this is your plan. And we've, we've looked at the numbers, but then also being open. Like you said, I mean, I had guys, you know, come up to me and say, I just like doing bicep curls. I don't know what it is. I love doing them before games. makes me look good on TV. Like you gotta be open to that. You don't need Mm -hmm. to read a a white paper research to know. And like you said, we're in the business of results. And I think that that's really with the top practitioners, they're using data and insights to guide their decisions uh, at a macro and a micro level, but then they're ultimately- going to their toolbox and making a a judgment call with what they feel is best for that person. Cause no matter what the technology or no matter what the data set is, you're never going to have it all. You don't know if they had a piece at the night before, you don't know if they had an exam or what's going on. And so I think as a coach, you always have to find that balance of objective and subjective stuff Mm -hmm. into your training stimulus. So that, that was kind of what I enjoyed. And it was a, it was a great puzzle and a good journey. And I loved it when people said we got lucky, I'm back there the next year. And, and again, you know, then the next team was even better by the numbers and, but now you know, didn't get to happen, but then, you know, to see as the program's carried on now and they're in great hands on, you know, all fronts, it's just, it's exciting to be a part of it. And you mentioned uh, Quinny that year was playing the ACL, that picture uh, he gave to me. It's actually framed on my wall. And so I think about that and he talks about the journey of getting to the top, even though he had finished his time, um, he still stayed involved in the program. Um, but you know, the expectation was that that next generation would carry the torch. So absolutely, you know, one of the top coaching experiences I've ever had of just watching
1: everything work out the way that it did. It was awesome. Well, you want to talk about narratives. One of the best stories I have about you is is not necessarily you giving me a sheet or showing me a data metric or anything like that, that obviously was, um, something you did with consistency. But I remember us having on away game, long bus ride back, uh, and then you and I went. Um, into a room just outside of uh Payne Whitney. Um, I went into the boots, mind you. It's it's midnight now. We had just gotten back from a game, um, but we had a quick turnaround before a, a game. I guess two days, two or three days later, maybe it was a Tuesday game or something like that. And our conversation between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m. while I'm in boots and, and you're helping me uh, get protein in my body and refueled and all that stuff. I mean, that's the difference, but nobody wants to talk about that, right? Everybody wants to talk about, you know, this regimen or this regimen or what tool are you using or what equipment are you using? There's, there's no, there's no replication the out there like the work ethic and the time investment so that's a story that I want your listeners to know about yourself is that you 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 stuck around um and barely slept at all to make sure that we were successful
0: you had to I mean I, I had the easy part I didn't have to go out and play you, you guys are the one who had to go up and down the field I got a chance to just watch the show on, on game day and you know certainly a magical time and something that I think a lot of our listeners are searching to try to replicate within their own domain but regardless of the sport, you, you got to start with the individuals and understanding too, that you know, coming back to your point about, it takes time, not that it could take 10 years, but like each day is going to stack and you're going to make a week. And is that week better? And I think that's probably a more appropriate, I don't know, feedback loop for a coach is, is, is this week better than last week? Is this month mm-hmm. better than the month previous six months to six months and, and build from there and know that sometimes as a coach, you messed up. Like you wrote the wrong plan. You ran the wrong drills and your, your athletes gave you a maximal effort and you didn't win a game, but that, that's can't be how you're judging success. And, and and I'd, I'd like to ask, like when you're a coach and, and you've got that humility moment where you're like, oh man, I messed that up, or that could have been better. What are some of the mental strategies or what's going on from a mental standpoint of the team culture? When that coach actually admits I could have done better. Cause I can think of sometimes both coach Shea and other coaches where they came in and said, you know, that's on me, that that's really, really hard to do. But, but from a team perspective, both from a technical, but you as a player as well, what's going on when a coach does that? Cause I think that's often misunderstood.
1: Yeah. I would just point to what I said earlier about the role of a great coach is to define reality. And when you have student athletes or athletes that admire you, that look up to you, that trust you, that um, are looking for guidance from you, that want to go off to war or play in a sport underneath you, right? You owe them that. You owe them the truth. So sometimes it's going to come across as, you know, that was the wrong game plan, my fault. Um, but it can come out in, in many different ways. Um, and there's a great thing about telling the truth is you don't have to remember what you said. Right, so I think the idea, um, and Shay did that all the time. Right, that was on me. Right, that was on me. That was on me. Great leaders do that. Right, they take responsibility for losses and then give it away during the successes. And I think uh, it's a hard thing to do. But again, it comes back to humility, Thomas. Right, show me an individual. um, They don't even have to have the role or the position held as coach, but show me an individual who's humble which is the definition of humility is what I do not know is more important than what I do know, right. It's putting a higher amount of import, importance on what you do not know, right. I come into this podcast. I know I have a, I have a pen and paper here, Thomas, you're going to teach me something, right. During this, I don't know what it's going to be, right. I already have, I've got a couple ideas down, right. That I'm going to steal from this conversation and we talk about later. Right. But that kind of idea that, you know, that, that has to be higher than what I do already know. And I think if you can lead from that, tell the truth, how you're feeling. Um, and at, at the same time, be humble enough to admit when you're wrong, uh, that, that's what it's all about for sure. And, and assume that
0: some coaches open to that idea and, and you've obviously as a player and as a coach yourself, have a lot of tools in the toolbox. I often see a lot of coaches try to do too much. What are the mm-hmm. like top two or three things? Cause when we do this podcast, we always like to give an actual walk away, drill nugget or something and, and i'd love for you to kind of talk about and maybe you do it as a player and then you also do it as a coach but at least for a coach what are three strategies or tools to kind of handle this i don't even know journey into leadership journey into changing a program or just even into mental performance that they need to be aware of they need to refine and keep sharp um, but can use you know immediately once
1: they finish listening Excellent. I mean, the first thing that I would uh, bring up is the seven thirty eight fifty five rule of communication um, by Chris Balks, FBI hostage negotiator, wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. Um, as a coach, you have to understand the power of your communication, right? And the seven thirty eight fifty five rule is 7% is words or diction that you choose. So it's really, really small what words you're going to choose to say. 38% is your tone or the inflection in your voice. So late in the game, because calm is contagious. So it's so important for them to come into a huddle and speak with a level of calmness using words that they've already said in the past, such as in lacrosse, let's win the next round ball, right? Let's, that, let's trust the process in a tone that really matters. And if you do have a dog at home, you understand the 38%, right? Cause you could say to a dog, I hate you. And the thing wiggles, it's whole body, right? But humans are no different. And then 55% is body language, right? So energy is caught, not taught. Right? And if you have to understand that fifty five percent of your communication is nonverbal, then that's what I meant by leadership is always going on, right? Because you're being observed, stared at, noticed, and your, your your students are watching you. What a great little read. The students are watching. You're being observed as a leader, right? So you're always communicating whether you want to or not. I think that's a really important thing to understand. The second thing that I would point up, Point two is is arousal control, right? So arousal control, what is that all about? It's um, you want to make sure your players are relaxed when they should be and activated when they should be, right? The yerkes statsen curve does a great idea of showing you that in in a a graph form. It's how to handle stress. Your performance is going to be at its optimal level, at the right level of arousal. How do you do that? Create the right environment, right? Create the right environment. I think as a society, but certainly teams and organizations, Um, in America, at least, we have an untrained parasympathetic nervous system, right? So we're activated when we shouldn't be, right? And we're not practicing and training arousal control, right? So those are the two things that I would really point to. And then the third would be the consistency of conversation and communication, right? So outside of understanding your tone and your body language, there's a rapport that has to be built, right? And you have to be the same every day, right? Leadership is an everyday endeavor idea so um holding film sessions or review sessions or meeting sessions just to talk things through knowing that every single time doesn't need to be a lecture maybe it's just poising questions right because if you if the quality if the quality of communication is going to matter the quality of your questions are certainly going to matter right so getting to understand those who are above and beneath you is a really really important idea so i would really point to those three things as takeaways understanding the seven thirty eight fifty five rule of communication building an, an environment that deals with the right arousal control so your players feel safe and cared for and so they'll they'll actually be able to run through a wall and then say where's the next one for you that comes by you creating the right environment um and then the third and final would be there's no bigger gift that you can give away than that of being heard so ask questions and get informed right so you can get your strategy for the game in formation right and, and by doing that you're actually setting yourself up for success. Yeah, I think people would be shocked at just having
0: an open door just to talk. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to agree with it. I would often tell all the players, I'm going to put time in. We're going to do the plan. But when we hit the floor, we're going to go at heart. But if you ever want to know, and I remember there were a couple of guys, and they actually sat down. We'll go line through, line by line. We'll go rep by rep, give the justification, and and we're going to go through. And you were open to some change and then some things were not but just that whole environment where it's not accusatory it's not defensive and as a, as a strength coach or any kind of performance coach you should be able to justify what you're doing there should be some logic or or rationale behind it that again if someone's asking you for it they're doing it because they're searching to make their intent better not they're mm-hmm. not questioning you they're not trying to undermine you because again as you mentioned if it's if it's correct and it's right and it's true that should be a galvanizing moment to go forward. And, and I think, I think it's tough for coaches because on the flip side, I can give you the argument, you know what, they just need to deal with it. This is my system. They need to fall in line. It's worked before it'll work again. And we're going to keep recruiting until we get the right system. And, you know, all that whoop stuff and all that, you know, recovery stuff, sometimes you have to play through pain. How have you seen that? Cause again, you've been through a very, uh, a very, a very important time in sports history where all of this stuff is available. And some people have overdone it. Some people have underdone it because you do have to play in pain. You do have to go through tough times. And mental toughness is a real thing, both physiologically, psychologically, uh, team communication-wise. It's a real thing. And some people crumble under stress and pressure, adrenaline, and every other thing you mentioned within the nervous system. Walk me through like that if I'm that doubter and I come in and say, you know, Mark, this stuff's great and all, but We've been playing sports a lot longer than this This happy kumbaya stuff
1: and optimization. Sometimes you just got to play. How do you find that balance? I think you talk yourself through it, right? I, I think one of the things I'm most proud of during my time at Yale is that I played every single game, and that was with injury, right? High ankle sprain, separated shoulders, tweaks, different things there, um, and finding a way to um, not just survive but get yourself – in the necessary proper order, right? We had a, an amazing, um, I, I guess you would call him the jack of all trades, but Kai was a guy that I would go to, you know, before every game, right? Whether it was dry needle or the extra sessions, I was I became obsessive about prehab and rehab, right? And um, it's a time investment, Thomas, right? Just getting you, yourself to where you need, right? I always, I, like I talked about earlier in our discussion, right, the, the power of listening, you have to listen to your own body. Right, so um, the best in the world, they feel they don't think. Right, so if I feel a certain way, I need to respond. Right, my my body's telling me something, my mind is telling me something. Whether that's I have to journal about it, whether I have to reach out to one of my sports psych- uh, psych- psychologists, that's one of my mentors, and and just have a conversation about you know this is what I'm dealing with. Right, or it's it's actually something physical that I can go do, like physical meditation. Right, getting myself in the right uh, right right level. So to answer your question. Right. How did I do it? I just like it was being a part of a team and a program that I really, really wanted um, to support and do all, all the things I could for. Right. Usually it's much harder to go to that level of mental toughness that you're talking about, Thomas, if it's not for the right purpose. Right. Higher performance comes from higher purpose. Right. I always defined Y A L E as you are lucky enough. That's how I always felt. Wearing that jersey, right, and I was lucky enough to be there to to play. To and uh, who am I, you know, to 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 say, oh, my ankle is hurting me, right? And I say that with extreme caution. That I understand that there's some um, injuries that should not be played through, right? But I also um, come from that commitment side of things, right? I heard a great story uh, about Dan Gable, right? Who's one of the best. Uh, um, wrestlers of all time, probably the best, right? And He went to the Olympics and didn't get a point scored on him. So I think that's right up there, right? And, and he wrote the flow, forward for a book called The Heart of a Champion. And um, one of the things that Dan Gable did really well is he defined the difference between hurt, pain, and agony. And one of my mentors went to go see him speak and he stayed after. And he said, um, you know, I was a wrestler in college. So were you. You know, well, what was the difference between you and I, right? And Dan Gable said, well, take me through your n- normal day. And he said, well, we had usually had practice after class, and it was probably from 4.30 to 6.30. He goes, yeah, same with me. What'd you do after that? He goes, oh, well, I usually stayed for like 30 minutes and got some extra reps with the with the guys that wanted to do it. He goes, yeah, same with me. What'd you do after that? And he goes, then we went to the dining hall, we caught up, and we ate dinner. And he goes, see, that's the difference probably right there. I would go put on a rubber suit, turn up the heat all the way to it's, uh, its highest level, and I would jump rope until I passed out. I never really passed out, but I got right to that level, right, because I wanted to be the best, right? And that... That's the idea of her pain and agony. Dan Dan says, if you want to be the best on your team, you work out until you're hurting. Um, and, and if you want to be the best in your league or division, you, you work out until you're in pain. Um, and then if you really want to be the best of all time, right, you got to hurt, work out until you're in agony. It's like, wow, that's kind of drastic, don't you think, Dan? No, do we really need to work till we're in agony? I'm not, I'm not sure if we should be doing that, right? That's too much. Right? Well, yeah, there, there was that edginess about Dan Gable, that's for sure. But he's also known to, if you could call him to this day, I, I think he picks up the phone and, and answers some of your questions. So he he had that kind of comfort of the disturbed, right? He had that other side to him. But you want to talk about toughness, right? You want to talk about mental toughness, it's understanding your own threshold, right? And, and, and being honest with yourself, integrous with yourself, right? Because you can do hard things. Right? That's something that I say with the former uh, head physician of the premier lacrosse league, right? She sent to me this little kindergarten quote, you can do hard things. We can do hard things. Yes. Yeah. It's actually really true. And I can't believe that we forget that as we get older, we try to start making excuses. We can do hard things. And the more you do hard things, the more self-respect you have for yourself. And that gives you the momentum, which is my favorite word in the world because a wave doesn't crash where it starts to build year after year, you know, to get to that program level or build your character to a level where you're starting to attract success.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. And and you mentioned that, you know, that uh, the YALE uh, meant something to you. I, I think about within our position, people don't know this, but, you know, Jerry Martin is an all-time Titan in strength and conditioning. Well, he was there in the 80s. And so we found actually some archival pictures of him back there and think about what he did and how he revolutionized in his time when he left Yale to, to UConn. I mean, how many national championships did uh, men and women's basketball have back-to-back? Football leveled up a division. Like, are you kidding me? And you look at some of the people that came out of that program where they integrated Dr. Kramer and the master's program and Mm -hmm. all the people that were in that master's program, they're all now gurus and and leaders of uh, corporations. But it was this magical time. I think Pat Dixon referred to it as Camelot where you go through. And so I remember us talking about Oh my God, you know, what do we do? And we'd be thinking about in the back of your head and whether it was Jerry, whether it was the person who wore the uniform before you trying to make it better, there has to be that real sense. And I think it's, it is tough. And especially until you've been around greatness, it's hard to understand and navigate that because at the highest level, when you have athletes, you really, they have no governor. You have to watch out for them. And as you mentioned, whether it's Kai or this other sports med staff, you know, that was a great team that would go there and and let you know, and and you can push yourself. And, and when you get out to the edge, it takes a team to be able to understand, you know, it, should we push today? Should we not the athlete, the best athletes, they're going to go, they're never going to stop. And and I think that's where also too, you have to be really careful that, you know, if I asked you to do as many pushups as you can, some people might do 10, some people might do 25 you know, and maybe I'll leave a few in the tank. I, I know that you and, and many of the guys on that team, you guys would literally, until your shoulders exploded, you would do it and you'd be pissed that you didn't get five more. And like, it's it's just one of those things that throughout your time, knowing when to push it. And John Wilborn said it best of that, you know, you are forged, you know, in the crucible of training. Um, and if you don't have good enough training, you, you, you shatter on the rocks. And I always wanted to make sure that there was never a time physiologically or stress-wise that when any of my athletes went on the field, especially you guys, you weren't worried if your legs were going to be there. You know, phase four was pretty brutal. You knew that you could get up and get down and that your legs would be there and that also you could communicate. Like you said, how many times did we do communication drills and and look into each other and supporting each other, even when you're tired? And I think that's where the weight room can do a good job of micro dosing that. A- mm. And again, someone's a little sore. Okay, well, you've got mm. your team. talk to sports med. You know, we call down to the first floor and, you know, Jay, give a green light. Yeah, good to go. Then we're fine. Um, and I think that that's that teamwork. But it comes back to, you said, that central commitment to what are we trying to
1: accomplish? Well, well, Thomas, you know, there's this ongoing you know, conversation around confidence, right? How do I become more confident? And everybody think it's something like the, the wind's going to hit them in the face one day and they're going to be confident. And, and you know, it, it really has everything to do with the answer you just gave us right? If, if you want to be more confident, whether it's that microdosing in the, in the, in the weight room, right? But you have to, it always goes back to the preparation. It always goes back to the, to the repetitions. And, um, I, um, let me know what you think about this Thomas, right? Cause I, I thought about this one day when I was on the echo bike doing, you know, 10 twenties, right? And, and I was thinking about how there's people that are out of shape for sure. Right. You know, what, what's our obesity, obesity epidemic going on right now, right? It's 60 to 70%, right? And then there's people that are in shape, right? So that's all those people that are not out of shape. And then there's game shape. Right? Okay? And when you're in game shape, that's different, right? You're not just in shape, you can go four quarters, right? And something that I've learned throughout my pro career is that there's something called championship shape, right? And it's beyond game shape. Right? It's actually that mental calmness, that psychological soundness, that spiritual alignment, right? That 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 humble heart that that love, that grace under pressure, that that calmness, right? The championship shape, how do you get there, right? That's just, knowing that that's out there, right? It took the top of my head off and it led me into a whole new realm, right? You would never be able to see that from all the way back here. You can't see championship shape from out of shape because all you're thinking about is, how do I have the right diet so I am in where I should be for this wedding two months from now? Like, no, dieta means lifestyle, right? That's where the origin. What's your nutritional lifestyle? What's your training lifestyle, right? What's your relational lifestyle, spiritual lifestyle, emotional lifestyle? Once you start to create a lifestyle around it, right, and and get feedback or results, right? Thomas, how am I doing? And give me the truth. Define reality for me. Same with my whoop. Define reality. Body composition. Define reality for me. Now it's up to me whether I want to go get it or not. And what am I talking about go getting? Championship shape. And it's not just sport, right? You can do that in the executive world. You can do that as a parent. What's championship shape as a parent, right? How can I love better, right? You are in the service industry. How can I be there, right? For my teammates, for my family, Right. Because that's really what we're talking about here, Thomas. We're really talking about increase your reliability. Please. Right? Increase your individual reliability so that you're ready for not if the storm hits, when the storm hits, not just for yourself, but for everybody. Right. Not I mean, think about when I ask you the question, who do you admire? Thomas, the people that come to your mind when I ask you that question are people that are reliable, right? That have are at least working towards. That championship shape in their own life yeah
0: i think that's often overlooked people in the in the time of specialists and experts yeah the the people that were there and and sometimes it's the uh it's the guys were there after practice to make sure everything got picked up sometimes it's the the coaches that you know wasn't a former olympian or wasn't whatever but they uh they were always there to to lend an ear and you know a pat on the back or a kick in the butt you know sometimes you need a little bit of both um but yeah no that that is uh that is true cuz i'm i'm going back thinking even through time from player to becoming a junior coach to to present day there's some of the people that have been there through that whole journey and there's some people that have only been there for a moment of time and the ones that i look up to you know that they, they always pick up that
1: phone that's uh yeah no that's mm. consistency that's spot on i think that's something we should more look to be consistent rather than confident because the confidence is a byproduct of consistency mm.
0: Well, well, now, how do you apply this in your with your current stuff? I know you know you currently you're playing, you're doing this stuff, but as you go forward, what's next? Because I know whatever you're going to do, you're going to crush, and I know you got about ten million things going on. Every time we talk, mm-hmm. I have to ask what time zone you're in because you're all over the place.
1: What, what's next? You know, I uh, find myself in a really uh, fortunate spot, right? I grow growing my clientele and, and work in, in mental performance coaching, right? I am um, uh, working. Um, In the classroom still, in sport and performance psychology, grad work, um, and and all the while doing, you know, speaking engagements, working with teams and individuals, right? So when I started the company back in 2018, it was for the uh, elite high school student-athlete that wanted to play at the next level, right? So when I walked away from uh, Wall Street, I I asked myself, kind of where could I start? What do I know pretty well? Um, And that has evolved to where it is now. So uh, Coach Andrew Stimmel, um, who is a volunteer assistant, uh, during my time at, at Yale, I was now the head men's coach at Marquette. So um, I help them out on the mental front. Um, and I work with Syracuse women's lacrosse right now as well. So that has been a gradual from high school to college. Um, and um, now I'm working with executives as well, which I absolutely love. You know, because this stuff is transitive, right? From sport to life to business, right? Different responsibilities, right? Just because we um, now have a family and we're not a student, right, anymore, just different different responsibilities. What are the strategies to handle it from a time maximization standpoint, from a goal setting perspective, right? And then it always comes back to Thomas. You said this really uh, earlier on, right? When we were talking about, and I posed to you, what, what what was it like for you working with 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 the Yale program? You talked about it, it's so important just to be present in their life and consistent, right? right I listened to, to you because I admired you. I listened to you because I trusted you. And that's really where I'm at in, in my work is continuing to evolve, um, you know, elite high school and, and student athletes just because of motor skill development. I don't want to throw them into a fire too soon uh, as, as a young teenagers um, and then working um, and, and with uh, pro athletes uh, and Olympians and organizations like that. Right. I, I believe that this is all the difference. Right. And I'm obsessed with learning it and coaching it
0: you're constantly adding tools in your toolbox but if you had to go back take from now back to time zero what are your three biggest ahas and i'll even say uh things you thought were something and then you're like man i got that wrong what was your just biggest insights because you've covered so much today from training from leadership communication i mean you've touched on so many domains where usually someone is in their silo and they own it you're owning all of them and so across the board what have you learned or what is what are some of the insights that you've had that you didn't really expect throughout the time uh, of your journey?
1: I I think one of of the first things is boundaries is uh, if you really want to be successful, you have to set up healthy boundaries. I I never really understood that until um, my later twenties, if you will. I think it's really important um, because as my first lacrosse coach and ex Marine DEA agent, you know, had a homicide from Manhattan Uh, Brian Cowan, and I can still hear his voice, right? He he would say to me as a fifth grader, you know, uh, oxygen is free. You know, if you die on this field, I'll name it after you. So you want to know where I kind of got my 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 discipline from. You know, at fifth grade, uh, that's what I was hearing, right? So um, he he would always say to me, and it still reigns true, um, To that, Mark, you can't live in two worlds. And uh, I like that idea, right? You can't have this aspiration, this goal, this vision, and think you're going to get away. With this sort of action over here, right? And because uh, it, it arises like oil and water, right? You, you can't live in two worlds. What else would he say to me? He would say, Be the one, right? Be the one that shows up early, stays later, um, takes the road less travel, but always, always. Um, and I still catch coffee with him uh, as much as I possibly can because he's a grounding force in my life. So that's probably uh, one of the first things that's really stuck with me, you know, talking about my middle school to high school. Um, and then I think when I was making the transition from attackman to uh to Yale and playing short state defensive midfielder, I still remember the conversation having it with uh coach Andy Shea. I was really happy that I made that decision at a young age to play any role because I see that now where you 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 whispered about it a little bit, you know, specialization and expertise and little things. But right? I I was I would have done anything for us to win a ring at Yale. You know, Right? I, I would have played any, any role that it, that it took for us. So that's kind of what, what I was really happy that I did. I don't see that as much anymore. Right, It's like, uh, what's the joke? I think it comes from the book, Range, that, that we're not even seeing ear doctors anymore. We're seeing left and right ear doctors. Right, It's so funny in, in that regard Right, because it's just too much specialization. So I think the ability to, to see community rather than just yourself. Um, that's been something that uh, I've learned organically. And then that was instilled in me greater and greater. And then putting my short stint in, in wall street and and then, uh, building a company. I mean, you learn so much when you're building a company. Uh, but I think it was that healthy boundary sort of things, like understanding that, like, okay, not only now am I away from the, uh, Yale lacrosse, um, this, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, you do this. Now I have to figure it out on my own. Right, So creating my own schedule, my own organization, my own business, this entrepreneurial mindset um, really furthered me to set up healthy boundaries in my relationships, in my life, in my work, with my training, um, and and really making sure that everything that I do finds alignment so that, as it was put by Ben Ives, and I'll throw him one more nod, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's work-life harmony, and you got to find things in your life that kind of align yourself so that you're living it. Right. You're not just talking about it. You're living it Um, because over time, if you're not if you're being unauthentic and not truthful, you can't sustain that. It's not sustainable. And know that you have a
0: a time, like you said, that, you know, you had a four year career and wherever you go, you might have to use, you know, extraordinary effort to get those extraordinary outcomes. But it's not going to last forever. And you think it does. And we see this. We see this a lot with athletes, whereas, you know, I'm never going to graduate. And then four years are the fastest they've ever been or people will get to a job and they blink and it's 10 years gone by and you know you have to think about what is my goal what is my time period but i think also you know asking yourself what is a win what is a win to you on a personal level and, and whether it's looking at you know how much do you make per hour versus that hour you know if assuming you didn't have tomorrow you might have that off time to give a loved one a, a phone call or spend time with family and friends suddenly there might be a different value and I you know, that think that often gets overlooked, but the top practitioners, the top performers, they do, they do have to make some sacrifices and it's missed birthdays on the pro level. I mean, athletes have talked about that for a while, is especially during the holidays, you know, you're not there and it's a lifestyle more than just a job and trying to figure out when, when's enough. And, and that's okay too, to hang up or, or shift and pivot. Um, but if you're going to be in it, get after it. And like you said, be the one, I love that. That's, that's a good point.
1: I will say the what you shine line on there is the difference between being significant versus successful. You know, if you aim at being significant and you're looking to, you know, I have this thing on my desk here that says to me, who needs me? And it's a great question that I'm, it's always poising at me, like, who needs me? Right. Because like I said earlier, I'm in the service industry. Right. Like, I don't care what your job is. You are in the service industry, whether it's for your significant other or, or your family. Um, right. We are not in control of receiving love. We are in control of giving love. Right and and so the understanding that if you can live your life towards significance, right, you will be successful, right. And I love how you brought up that idea of like the money per hour and stuff like that. It, that all of that will fall into line the more you aim for the highest mountain and climb towards it. The sacrifice word is no small thing to me, right? It was instilled in me as a young boy through my faith, um, and that's only shine brighter over, over time. But the successful sacrifice, but out the significant sacrifice, right? At Yale, right. Together, there was a lot of sacrificing, right? And, and and it leads to the byproducts that you want, right? So if, if you want anything in life, something's got to give, right? It's unrealistic to think that you can't do that.
0: Good stuff. I mean, again, you feel, feel like you've given a little master's class here on, on, on some of the concepts in mental performance, but we often get people that want to go a little bit further, dig a little bit deeper what's the best way for someone to get a hold of you and again are you just strictly working with pros and like the college teams or if an average listener at a high school or just even an individual wants to reach out what's the the best way to go about getting getting in touch with you
1: actually I just do a commitment call all right a brief commitment call um, where I get to know the the individual um see what's going on in their side their story um and then if I have the bandwidth to take them on as a client I will uh, my uh website is Um same with my Instagram and, and, and social on and LinkedIn and Facebook and all of that so I would just say uh, that's the best way to go um, through my website or, or uh, Marcosini at gmail.com I'll probably send them that way um, I appreciate you having me on and uh, it's been a pleasure connecting with you as always on this format but you know you know I'll be checking in on you all, all the time.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And again, it's been a real pleasure and look forward to watching you this season here in lacrosse and watching you continue to shine. So again, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. Look forward to it, Thomas. Thanks.